John 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, and that to who all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for it. Father, we do thank you for your marvelous word. Lord, you are a good God. You are a good, good father to us by giving us this word. And Lord, we thank you for the truth we see in this word, Father, that Jesus had a task and that Jesus has accomplished the task so that he could say on the cross, it is finished. Father, help us see the implication for all that that means, Lord, that this was not a plan that caught you by surprise, but it was a plan from eternity past that you had, that you would give your son a people when he would die for those people and your spirit would apply the work of the son to your people. Help us to see clearly with understanding, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you, you may be seated. I was talking with my father-in-law yesterday and uh, we were watching college football together, amen. Uh, and, uh, and so he had asked me a question, if you had 10 or 15 bucket list college football stadiums that you'd like to visit, uh, which ones would it be? And of course, I answered the swamp 15 times, right? No, I'm kidding. Uh, but um, uh, we started talking about some of those wonderful stadiums. And I just began to think, man, before I die, that would be a wonderful thing to be able to visit all of those stadiums. But I also thought that I had another bucket list that I've been working on for many times. It's also sports related uh, to go see every one of the major league baseball stadiums. There's 30. I made it to 13 and then I uh, got married and had kids. Uh, and so, um, uh, but I, I always think about that and I always think about how cool it would be to go to that 30th stadium or get that last thing done off the bucket list and thinking that then I could die with some sort of sense of satisfaction and yet uh, I noticed something is that it, it's not just wanting to see all 30, uh, team, uh, 30 baseball teams or the 15 football stadiums and the cost that that would accrue, but I also think of uh, the idea of, I mean, I have to have something to wear. My, my pet peeve is someone going to a football game with a neutral shirt, right? Like with something gray. And I'm like, come on, man, you got to show. So I have to have something to wear. So I've collected tons of, of baseball jerseys and that just keeps adding up, but I'd love to be able to have a jersey for every stadium that I'd visit. And so even in that, I feel like, okay, well, I'm adding another thing to that bucket list. And then, uh, well, maybe I want to visit specific games. And then well, what about teams that just have awesome football stadiums that I would, um, NFL stadiums or basketball arenas that I'd want to go to? The list just goes on and on and on. So there's a sense in which even if I were to go to all of these things, there would always be a little bit something more that would leave me with 
with a lack of satisfaction on my deathbed. And I think we, we do the same thing spiritually. I think there are things in our lives by which we say, I want to have victory over this sin before I die so I can, I can die in peace. I can face death knowing and rest ensured that I've, I've perfected this work. And, and I think that's a thing that happens in most of our lives. But you know, even the most mature Christians, the, the greatest Christians that have ever lived probably approach the end of their lives with many sins and failures. They probably, in their spiritual bucket list, probably don't have it all put together. In fact, the more uh, mature a Christian is, the more he or she probably recognizes just how far short they have fallen of the glory of God and their life and responsibilities. Uh, that's a reality for all of us. And the reason that's a reality is because none of us are perfect and none of us are sovereign. The best we can do is say, like the Apostle Paul, that we have fought the good fight, that we have finished the race by God's grace, and we have kept the faith. And well, this understanding, knowing about in, inevitably our frailty, makes this statement that our Savior makes here in John 17 all the more amazing. Jesus, just hours away from his death, Jesus is able to approach his grave with what we might call the greatest epitaph ever. Uh, verse 4, once again, reading it again, says this. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you had given me to do. That is an astounding statement. That's a statement that you and I can only aspire to. One which we are ever striving to live up to by God's grace, but one which only Jesus can actually say because he's the only one that actually did glorify the Father by doing all the Father had given him. Uh, imagine being on the eve of your deathbed and being able to say with undisputed truthfulness these words that came from the lips of our Savior. Imagine that, being able to feel that way and say that. Friends, all we can actually do is imagine that because these words belong to Jesus and him alone. But that's a good thing, as we'll see. These words are true of no other human being that has ever lived or will ever come to live. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to consider what our Savior has said in these verses by breaking it down to even smaller bite-sized pieces. Jesus says here that he's glorified uh, God on the earth. And he does this in two main ways. We're going to look at one briefly. And the second we're going to look at in, in different ways. But the first way that Jesus glorified his Father on earth was by his person. In his person, Jesus glorified his father in his person. What does this mean? I mean, Jesus had glorified the father in eternity past as the second person of the Godhead, but he also glorified the father when he became a man and went about the work of redemption. Jesus glorified the father in his person and also his work, but in his person, all that Jesus is glorifies the father. Everything. Everything. That he is the son, that he is altogether infinite, that he is eternal and unchangeable in his being, in his holiness, in his goodness, his justice, his wisdom and truth. All of that is glorifying to the father. Why? Well, because in Jesus, as we've seen several times, he has revealed the father to us. In these attributes of Jesus, we see the attributes of God, right? 
This is how God has revealed himself to you and I through his holy scriptures, through his son. And God would have us to know him by these attributes. The way that Jesus glorified the Father on earth is profoundly seen and appreciated in how he is the exact representation of the Father in his perfect humanity. We get a glimpse of these attributes of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus glorified the Father on earth and how he was the embodiment of all that the name of the Lord consists. Now, while it's true that Jesus displayed acts of power in various ways in different times, we must remember that it wasn't Jesus' power that shined most brightly. He only performed really a few miracles from time to time, from place to place. The attributes that are displayed most gloriously in his earthly ministry are things like his mercy, his compassion, his long-suffering, his grace, his love. See, in Jesus, we find God condescending to draw near to us. In Jesus, we see God condescending to eat and drink with sinners. In Jesus, we see God coming as the good shepherd to seek and save that which is lost. In Jesus, we see the compassion of God as he ministered to the downcast, to the trodden, to the deaf, blind, and the lame. We see in his ministry his compassion as he ministered to the homeless, the fatherless, and the widows. We see his love and compassion as he shed tears of sorrow over the death of his friend Lazarus. These are the kind of attributes that stand out to us as we read the accounts of the ministry of Jesus when he was on earth. And in all of these ways and more, Jesus not once ever fell short in glorifying the Father on his earth. That's astounding to me, and I'll tell you why. is because even in the small uh, appreciation we gave this morning, there's a tendency of my own sinful nature to, to when I see something that I'm doing good, immediately take responsibility for it. Immediately attest that it's because of me. Oh, I'm separate than God in this way. I, I feel like I'm doing really good, but it's mostly on my own. I'm accomplishing this. And that's not the case. As I've already said, every good gift we've been given is from the Father. And Jesus recognized that. There wasn't an ounce of pride in Jesus' mercy, compassion, and love. He gave all glory to his Father. And in his character and person, it was glorifying to the Father. You take note of that. So not only did Jesus glorify the Father in his person, but also want you to see where we'll spend the majority of time this morning is that he glorified him in his work. That Jesus glorified his Father by his work. Jesus glorified his Father by his work. Now, we, this is something we should know or we ought to know, right? That Jesus not only his person glorified the Father, but also in his work. But notice how he puts it again. In verse 4, he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. All that Jesus reveals to us about God is seen in not just what he is like, but also in what he did. We see the condescension, the compassion, the mercy, the grace, the long-suffering, the abundance of his goodness, truth, and love. We see all of these things when we consider the work of redemption that he accomplished. 
See, all of those glorious attributes bursting forth in the way in which Jesus finished this work of redemption. And so as we give our attention to the work of Christ, I want to begin by drawing your attention to something very important in our text. You'll notice that this work of Christ is spoken of as a singular work. Jesus glorified the Father by this singular work that was given him to do. Now, why would that be important? Well, I hope you paid attention to our kids' lesson. All right, it is a singular work, one task, which God had given him to do. And you can guess when God had given him that particular task before a time even existed in eternity past. It is a work. And the only other place in the Gospel of John that we see Jesus' work referred to as a singular work is in John 4.34. And in that passage, we read these words. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish this work. It's singular in the Greek. This is important because in both of these passages, we see the singular work of redemption was a work that was given to Jesus to accomplish. We're told that he was sent into this world by the Father to complete or finish this very work. That was the whole goal of his coming into the world. And if Jesus was sent from the Father to finish this work, think about this. It has to be necessarily meaning that this work was given to him at a time before he had been sent. This work was given to Jesus at some point before he entered into this world as a man. In fact, as we'll see from the testimony of God's word, Jesus was given this work in eternity past. Several verses and scripture references we're going to have here. Uh, Feel free to write the reference down and look at it later if you don't have time to write the entire scripture down. But John 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, Though this work of redemption was finished on earth, it was a work that God, kids, covenanted to do in eternity past before there was even an earth. The theological term for this covenant, as we've said many times before in the Gospel of John, is the covenant of redemption. Hebrews 13, 20 says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd, the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. That's a reference to an eternal covenant. This is the covenant of redemption made in eternity past before the members, uh, between the members of the Godhead. In 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20, we are told that Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world to redeem us. It says, with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown when? Before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. This kind of language is something that we can really only make sense of if we understand that God had decreed these things to come to pass long ago. Uh, Just a couple more passages to emphasize this. One other passage, in fact, Isaiah 53 Verses 10 through 12, Isaiah 53, of course, being the Old Testament prophecy of the coming suffering Messiah. It says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. He will see his labor and will be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Jesus says here through the prophet Isaiah in this text that he would see the labor, the work of the anguish of his soul and he would be satisfied with it. This is a work that he was given to do again before he came to earth and it was a work that would cause him to be satisfied. So let's think about this. In eternity past, the father gave the son a task, a job. That task was to redeem and save his people. The son, therefore, agreed to come into the world as a man to finish the work of redemption, and the Holy Spirit agreed to apply this redemption to his people. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in this covenant, this promise of redemption. As a reward for the work in which the son agreed to do, the the father promised him glory, he promised him honor, and he promised him, as we saw a couple weeks ago, a people. That's the covenant of redemption in a nutshell. This passage here in John is perhaps one of the clearest references to the idea of Jesus having been given a work to do even before he came into this world. Okay, why is that important? Why why does this matter? What practical benefit is there in talking about things like this, this covenant of redemption? Well, The reason we spend time on these important theological distinctions is because learning these things about God ought to stir in our hearts a praise for him. It was said by somebody long ago that all theology should lead to doxology. We see this pattern set forth for us in the epistles of the apostle Paul, don't we? He loads up often the first half of his letters with all of these theological concepts. And then what do we see at the the back end of his books? They're filled with praise and worship and response to these. So what we've learned about God in this covenant of redemption, it should cause us to praise him. Why? Well, let's consider the implications of what we just learned about the covenant of redemption. We just learned... That salvation is a work that was planned and finished by God alone. Think about the strength and foundation that has been laid for your redemption. Can you think of anything stronger than that? Can you think of a stronger foundation to build upon? There is no stronger basis for your salvation than what God has revealed to us here in this covenant. It is rooted in the eternal counsel and decree of God himself. It is rooted in the infinite love, the infinite mercy and grace, peace, compassion, patience, and long-suffering of God. In other words, if you are in Christ, you need to understand that, that, that this salvation that God has procured for you, it is a sure thing. <laughs> it's as sure as you can be sure. If you have this salvation, you can be sure in it because you have it, friend. You only have it because of what God has done for you. If you are the recipient of this salvation, then there is no way you will not be with your Father in heaven one day. You see, if you have faith, 
If you trust in Jesus Christ, it is only because God made this covenant long ago. It's only because this foundation was laid by God himself that you were given the faith to believe in this wonderful message of the news of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me put it this way. Knowing that God has covenanted in eternity past to redeem you from your sin and death, it ought to build you up in the assurance of your salvation. Has to. There is no greater way for us to be assured to know that we know that salvation has been accomplished than by seeing that this is something that's not new to Jesus, but it's been planned, decreed, and accomplished by God himself. It is all his work, all of him, all of grace. Now, given that we touched on the eternal aspect of this covenant, I want us to, to move on to now think about how, how God accomplished this, fulfilled this covenant, did the work in space and time. Uh, Jesus glorified the Father on earth by finishing the work which he had given to do, of course, but he did this, first of all, by coming into this world as a man and living a perfect, obedient life. Jesus glorified the Father by coming into this world as a man living in perfect obedience. We've got to understand this. This is important to the gospel message himself. I'll say it again. I know it's long. Jesus glorified the Father by coming into this world as a man living in perfect obedience. He had to come in this world as a man in order to accomplish and finish the work that Jesus had given him to do. Jesus had to become the last Adam in order to redeem us from the, what the first Adam had lost. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience, and, and by that, it means that he fulfilled all righteousness. I want you to remember that and think about that. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. That's what we're told of him. He obeyed the law. He was born into this world under the law that he might obey it on our behalf to fulfill all righteousness. He lived a perfect life, and that life was necessary for our redemption. He did this for us because we are in desperate need to have a perfect righteous attributed to us if we ever hope to be saved and live forever with God. You have to be, I want you to hear this, you have to be perfectly righteous. You have to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the standard for you to get into heaven. If you go to heaven and you stand before God without a perfect righteousness, you will not be able to enter into his gates. And the only way we get this perfect righteousness, of course, is because we get in through Jesus. It's his perfect righteousness that's given to us. You have to have it. You will not be permitted into heaven if you have something less. So Jesus had to live this perfect life. He had to be righteous on our behalf so that this righteousness would be imputed to us and received by faith. A, a beautiful psalm I got to read this week, Psalm 24. The psalmist says this in Psalm 24, 3 through 5. He says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand into his holy place? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart. That's bad news for us, folks. Without Christ, that's, that's pretty bad news. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. That's the one. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord in righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
You need to have clean hands of forgiveness and also that righteousness that only God can give. Now, given as we've been born into this world as wicked people, our only hope of being found righteous in the eyes of God has to come from outside of ourselves. Has to. It must come from God who alone is righteous. And so Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness so that we would be given his righteousness. So that we would be counted as righteous in God's sight through the work that he had done. Friends, it's very important that we understand that. In Adam, all died. Because his disobedience, because of Adam's disobedience, all of mankind fell with Adam. But Jesus came as the last Adam in order to do what the first Adam failed to do and what we fail to do continually each day. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience and he did that on our behalf if we belong to him. So therefore, we can actually say the Lord is our righteousness. But I want to answer this question, how would he become our righteousness? Because he bore the wrath of his father on the cross He became our righteousness because Jesus willingly volunteered to be our substitute in paying the penalty of sin that we owed and deserved to pay. This is the how of it. We can say that Jesus is perfectly righteous, but how did he purchase it for us? He willingly went to the cross and suffered the penalty of sin which we owed and deserved to pay. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, when he speaks the words about Jesus. He says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is where the wrath of God was poured out upon the Savior on our behalf. He, he passively received that suffering, willingly received his penalty. In Isaiah 53, we see this again. I'm going to read a couple more verses from that chapter. Verse 5 says of Isaiah 53, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of the Lord, of our well-being, fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And As for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, this is the work of the Lord in his perfect obedience. He suffered this on our behalf. Do you understand the extent by which his obedience went about? Do you understand what it cost him to be perfectly obedient and being the sacrifice for our sins? What a tremendous joy. That's how he glorified the Father. See, friends, this is something we we simply cannot say. Only Jesus can have this epitaph said of him. I want to see one more thing here, and this is vitally important. The last work I want us to look at is that Jesus glorified the Father by finishing the work that the Father had given him to do. Jesus glorified the Father by finishing the work the Father had given him. This is obviously very important, but I don't think we often see the implications of this. I don't think we see why this is so important. In other words, said like this, Jesus did everything that the Father had given him to do. There wasn't a single thing left undone. Think about that just for a minute. That is an amazing testimony, isn't it? There wasn't a single thing left undone by Jesus. 
Jesus glorified the Father by obeying him perfectly in every respect. There was never a time in the life of Jesus where he left a good deed undone that needed to be done. Never a time when he should have done something that he didn't do. It's absolutely amazing. By looking at the life and work of Jesus, I think we might learn a thing or two about us doing what the Father would have us to do in this life. Can I just say something to you? And I feel like there are several people that need to hear this this morning, myself and one of them. Let me say something directly to you, okay? You can't do it all, and you are not expected to do it all. It's impossible. The Lord is not calling you to to reach the whole world for Christ by our own doing. He is not calling you or me to minister to every single need that comes before us. Some of us, let me be honest with you, some of us are spread way too thin because we're unable to discern what our godly responsibilities truly are and how we faithfully carry out those tasks the Lord has has brought before us as opposed to all the many jobs we've taken up ourselves by our own doing. And here's the sad thing, is oftentimes when these things that come up that are from our own doing, they distract us, they deter us from doing what the Lord has plainly called us to do. We're we're doing too much, and oftentimes when we're doing too much, the first thing that suffers is the work of ministry, which we know he's given us to do. It's a culture problem. We all struggle with this. There are some responsibilities we have in this life that are, that are easy to figure out, right? If you're a student, you need to be a good student that honors Christ in your learning. If you're an employee, you need to be a good and faithful employee that honors Christ in his employment. If you're a husband, wife, son, daughter, brother, sister, then you need to serve the Lord with gladness in each of those capacities. But in doing so, don't fall into the error of thinking that you need to do more than you are able to do by the limitations that God has placed upon you. Every one of us is a finite creature with a limited amount of resources. It is our job by the grace of God to redeem the time well as unto the Lord. So therefore, all of us, All of us need to do this. We need to step back and prioritize our responsibility, realizing that we're not called to do everything. Some of us are very busy, aren't we? Perhaps too busy doing extracurricular work that's preventing us from doing the work what the Father has given us to do. The Lord has given each of us specific work to do, so we do well to try to discern the difference between the work he's given us to do and the unnecessary work which we have given ourselves to do. I want to give our attention to a fact, one more thing. I want to give our attention to the fact that Jesus is the one who has accomplished the work that the Father has given him to do. I want us to focus on this because we have to. According to the testimony of Isaiah 53, Jesus was able to look upon his work of redemption and what does it say? He was satisfied with it. He could be satisfied because he knew that he did all that the Father asked him to do perfectly. 
Now, how do we know that's the case? How do we know? How did Jesus even know that that was the case? He knew it by the response of the Father, right? The Father raised him from the dead on the third day. In doing so, the Father publicly testified that the sacrifice of Jesus was acceptable. The Father rewarded him with glory by not only raising him from the dead, but also exalting him into his right hand where he was given a name above all names and a people to call his own. In all of these ways and more, the Father revealed that he was satisfied with the work of his Son. Here's a question for you this morning. We know the Father was satisfied with the work of the Son. We know the Son looked upon his own work and he was satisfied with his work. But what about you? Are you satisfied with the finished work of Christ? And what I mean by this is, are you satisfied by the work of redemption that Jesus has finished? Or are you the kind of person that's trying to approve upon it? Are you in a spiritual depression because you feel guilty over all the failures that you have as a Christian? Are you trying to make up for all your guilt by trying harder to be a better Christian? Don't you know that if if that's the road that you are on, then you need to make sure you fully understand what's required of you. If you're trying to make up for your failures in this life, if you're trying to find a way to be, be better or feel better about the guilt of your sin and you think the way to do that is just to be more faithful to your daily devotions, to be more faithful in your church attendance or by being a better husband, wife, son, daughter, brother, sister, or if you think that you need to give more in the offering plate or spend more time going to church activities in order to counter the guilt that you're feeling, I got to tell you something. You're going to have to do better than that. You're going to have to do better in all of those areas and more. If this is the road you're planning to travel, you need to realize there is much more required of you to satisfy your sin before the Lord. You need not only to do all of those things and do them perfectly, but then you need to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. If you're seeking to rid yourself of the guilt to make up of your failures through these acts of obedience by going to God's law, you got to go all the way in and you need to realize you are going to fail. You have no hope of ever being able to rid yourself of that guilt. The reality is left to ourselves. None of us can keep God's law perfectly. Church family, if you want to be freed from the guilt of our sin and failures, all you got to do is trust in Jesus. Instead of working to try and rid yourself of guilt, what you need to do is trust in the one who's finished the work on your behalf. Listen, when when you are tempted to beat yourself up over your failures, don't run to the law for comfort. That's the last place you want to run to. Don't run to find God's peace and comfort in being a better law keeper. Instead, flee into the arms of your Savior. Recall what Jesus said to those who were anxious to do the works of God. You remember in John 6, 28-29, he says, Therefore, they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? What was Christ's answer? 
Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. This is the work that you do. You believe in him who he has sent. The only work you and I should be doing is believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And by believing in him, God will then give us the grace to overcome those areas in our life. But you must keep your dependence and focus upon the work of Christ. You start with him and then by God's grace, he enables us to go out and be obedient in those other areas of our lives. But the order here is extremely important, friends. Do not run to the law for comfort for your sin and guilt. Run to Jesus. Jesus has finished this great work that the Father has given him to do. All we really need to do is rest in him and him alone. And there is where we will find our peace. So friends, I, I say it again. We, we can't perfectly say on our deathbeds that we'll be able to say that I've accomplished everything that the Father has given me to do. But praise God, we don't have to say that to enter into heaven. All we have to do is quote verse 4. <laughs> Jesus finished the work which the Father had given him to do. That's my rest. That's my hope. When I'm lying facing in death's door, that's the only hope I have is that Jesus finished the work and praise God that he did. Let that be an encouragement to you this morning. Would you stand as we close in prayer?